0: The Dome Room of the Rotunda is reserved by the University for solemn occasions. This is not only a solemn occasion, but also a very pleasant one. Since our speaker tonight is a very old friend of Rare Book School and a very good one. Vincent Golden is now curator of newspapers and periodicals at the American Antiquarian Society. But he has had a connection with Rare Book School that goes back to the later 1990s has been on our staff off and on for many years and uh, looks after Sue Allen and her class uh, these days. And now also Jan Storm van Levin and his class uh, to their great prophet, I think. Uh, both Sue and Jan John, John Storm would agree. It's a pleasure to welcome him here tonight at Roebuck School to speak on Chasing the Dumpster and we'll let him explain the title. Vincent Golden.
1: Thank you very much. Been looking forward to this. In my talk tonight, I am going to um, give you a mixture of statistics and anecdotes, so one will hopefully offset the other. Throughout this country, there are many special collection libraries. Some of them are great, but there are a select few that are spectacular and have an international reputation. Places like the Newberry, the Huntington, the Morgan, the Folger. Here at UVA, you immediately think of the Barrett Collection. I am lucky to work for one, the American Antiquarian Society, and I'm not saying that just because Ellen Dunlap is in the audience, my boss. I say that when she's not around too. Just a little bit of background about the AAS. It's It's the third oldest historical society in the country, but the oldest with a national rather than regional focus. We were founded in 1812 by Isaiah Thomas, a man who was a printer, publisher, patriot, and fortunately, pack rat. He saved almost everything he got, and when he retired in 1802, he went on a quest to write a history of printing in America, which required him to first gather as much as he could. That came out in 1810 and when he founded us in 1812, he gave us most of his collection. And for newspapers, that meant over 550 volumes of early American papers back to 1704. We still have them. So we started with a great nucleus and we had built from it then. So when I arrived in May of 2002, my mission was to build the collection. Thanks to a new Stacks edition, I had several hundred empty shelves in climate-controlled Stacks. And whenever I tell librarians that, I often hear a sigh. So since 2002, I have added 178,369 issues as of June. Not just brought in, but actually processed and put on the shelf so readers can use. I have no social life. (laughs) People ask me, how do I find them? How do I, how do you go get them? Well, first of all, I'm going to, throughout this talk, I'm going to mention a couple of names frequently. I'm going to be citing Brigham, which is Clarence Brigham, who published a book in 1947, History and Bibliography of American Newspapers, 1690 through 1820. And then for 1821 through 1936, there was Winifred Gregory's American Newspapers. Both books listed not only titles, but also what places had what newspapers. So I'm going to be referring to Brigham and Gregory throughout. So where do I start looking for papers? I start looking for where they were. I dived into Brigham and Gregory and saw who had them in their papers in 1937 and 1947. And start contacting them. Both those books also, besides listing libraries, they also listed publishers' files. What newspapers still had their original files? So I started trying to track those down, and then it got depressing. Publishers' files—those loads of them that existed in 1937 and 47—I started calling around. The Wayne County Star in Lyon, New York, they had their files back to their first issue in 1821. 1977, they, 1978, they were scheduled to have their papers microfilmed. Two months before they were scheduled to be shipped out, their place burnt to the ground. They lost everything. There were no other known files of that paper. The Star Gazette Extra, Beerstown, Illinois. The publisher wrote me a nice letter saying in the 1960s, the roof blew off the chicken shed where they stored the paper, so they had to throw them away. Their files go back to the 1860s. Here in the state of Virginia, there were six publishers' files. I can't find a single one surviving today. The Rock Island Argus of Illinois, not only had their papers, but they had subscribed to almost every Scandinavian language paper in the country, and they were the only ones who had saved them. They gave their files to another institution where they were microfilmed, then tossed in the dumpster. Just a few others, Charleston Courier, South Carolina, 1852 on, gone. Westfield Republican, 1855 on, gone. Courier Gazette, Newark, New York, 1869 on. Washington County Post, Salem, New York, 1825 on. Rising Sun Recorder, Indiana, 1866 on. Natick Bulletin, Massachusetts, 1869 on, gone. Advocate of Newark, Ohio, 1828 onward, gone. Almost all of these files were unique, all of them gone. All of that history has disappeared. I've had some successes. There are some files that I have found that have survived. In one town in Illinois, a town of 2,000 people, contacted the publisher. He remembered them. He still had them in a closet. He was all set to give them to me. I literally showed up on his doorstep where he told me his kids had talked him out of it, given them to us. They had seen Antiques Roadshow, thought they were valuable, and wanted to keep them. I've had some successes, though. A year ago, April drove up to Rutland, Vermont. The Rutland Herald picked up 66 volumes from 1823 through 1876. But I knew they once had more, so I asked them about their earliest volumes. Nobody, nobody remembered it. Finally, this old guy, oldest employee in the place, remembered the combination to a safe. They opened it up. There were the volumes for 1794 through 8, back to their first issue. Washington, Pennsylvania, Little town, 40,000 south of Pittsburgh. The, re- the reporter, been in business since 1808. I contacted them. They thought they'd remember they had them. Two weeks later they called me, they found them in a storage room behind broken office furniture. It still took me seven months of talking with them and their family. they was still a family owned paper to convince them to give me their papers. They had a beautiful run from 1808 to 1825, 1843 through 76, plus five volumes of their competitors from the 19th century that they had bought out and saved their files. We had 36 issues of the reporter in the collection. We added over 2,400. Driving back through that town, I stuffed 50 volumes in a Ford Taurus. If they had a few more, I would have had to mail my suitcase home to make room for them. The first success was Centralia, Illinois count of 14,000, 70 miles due east of St. Louis. I contacted them, they did some looking. They found one volume covering May 1863 to May 1867, their first four years. 200 issues, 198 of them unique. Now, a little bit of background. This area of Southern Illinois is known as Egypt. Not Little Egypt. Little Egypt was an exotic dancer at the World's Fair. There's nothing exotic about southern Illinois. So I drove down when I was home over Christmas break. And I get to the building. It's typical 1890s, four stories, um, brick, concrete, little decorations across it. But the entrance is decorated like the entrance to an Egyptian tomb. You go inside, it's a combination of Mayberry and Egyptian Revival. Linoleum floor, tin ceiling, oak counter, marble top, but the columns have lotus leaves on the top. It's decorated in reds, blues, and golds. There's hieroglyphics across the Wainscotty. The matriarch of the family <laughs> came out and took me to the back, gave me a tour, showed me their goss 4 color um, printing press they printed their paper on that they bought in the Kennedy administration. Showed me her desk. Sure enough, it was an oak roll top, piles of paper, and measuring stick on it. There was a manual typewriter in the center where she banged out her daily column. Her son later told me they bought it as war surplus. World War I. <laughs> they still had the receipt. But that's a small town close to the north-south border during the Civil War. Extremely rare. We acquired that December 2003. That has been used 10 times already. Once the word got out, we had it. The, like I said, the matriarch of the family, Bang out daily calm later wrote after I took the volume, perhaps, although all copies of the newspaper are on microfilm, it was with mixed feeling that the donation was made. Perhaps the deciding factor was the realization that the newspaper would be properly conserved, made available to scholars and would be safe from fire, theft, and possible vandalism. These files are like children to these publishers. They are reluctant to give them up. But in searching for these publisher's files, what i found is that less than 15% are still in the owner's hands today. Many of them are destroyed. Some of them have disappeared so long ago. Nobody really knows what's happened to them. Others have ended up in private hands. Others, who knows? I won't, throughout this, I won't embarrass the name of some institutions. I'll just obliquely refer to them. There's a city in upstate New York. The local newspaper office had not only their publisher's files, they had their competitors. They gave them to the local historical society, who gave them to the local library, who microfilmed them and threw them in the dumpster. A local historian was so shocked, she rescued over 200 volumes from the dumpsters they're now in one of her bedrooms she won't give them to us and I don't blame her, two institutions have tossed them out why should she trust a third it's going to take time to work on her I hope but back to the horror story with statistics like I said I'm from Illinois and so I took a close look at what had been published there Personally, someone published a list of almost all newspapers from Illinois between 1814 and 1880. Illinois was a fast-growing state in terms of number of newspapers published. In 1840, there were just 43, eighth in the country. 1850, 107, we were up to fifth. 1860, 286, we had reached the fourth largest state in terms of newspaper publishing. 1870, 505 were third. 1880, 1,117 newspapers were published in this state. We were second in the country always behind the state of New York. We never caught them. Back to 1880, those four papers published in Bohemian languages. One in French, 70 in German, two Polish, 20 Scandinavians, a very eclectic mix of papers from one state. But out of 414 towns that had at least one newspaper from 1876 and earlier, In 1937, 182 of those towns had no recorded copies in any institution. Since the U.S. newspaper project started in the late 1970s, at least one issue has been found for 99 of those towns, which still means there's 83 towns, their history is still gone. In New York, During the Brigham era, pre-1821, 132 towns had papers, 446 titles, 22 titles listed as no copies known, 35 titles, the only known files are at the American Antiquarian Society. A lot of those are incomplete. There's gaps. In 1832, there was 258 newspapers in the state of New York. In 1880 there were 364 towns that had papers. According to the census, 587 million issues were printed in the state of New York. And I went through Gregory trying to see who held in 1937 those 1880 issues. Essentially, for every 40,000 issues printed, seven were kept in institutions in 1937. I hate to think what that is down to today, probably one or two. But when we come to 2001, Nicholson Baker's book, Double Fold, how dare a non-librarian chastise us for throwing away newspapers in exchange for a microfilm. And not only that, he told it, not in a dry academic way, but in an exciting tale Where he hinted at the CIA, just because they worked there, who knows? (laughs) But in 19, I'll give you an example. Though 1939, the Library of Congress started preservation microfilming of newspapers. They said, "We're going to film the brittle ones because they're deteriorating, and space is valuable. It's Washington D.C. You don't have elbow room on cheap." By 1962, they had filmed 165,000 bound volumes. Only 25,000 of them were on wood pulp. And for several years, the volumes that they sold, that they microfilm, were sold to dealers. They weren't even offered to librarians. will give you one example of something we purchased. The Edwardsville Spectator, another Illinois newspaper. Third newspaper published in the state, first anti-slavery paper. We purchased 226 issues between 1819 and 1826. It was recorded as the second best run known. The best was at the St. Louis Mercantile Library, but they deposited in another Illinois library. And last year, I spoke to one of their employees. They can't find them. So our second best might be best. We do buy a lot from dealers, Some people say, do you have animosity towards dealers? We don't have animosity towards dealers. We sometimes get frustrated, but not animosity because we can't be everywhere. We can't see everything. We can't contact everyone. These dealers are out there. They're extra pairs of eyes. They're talking to people that I don't know. They find things that I would have never found and sometimes give us a chance to buy them. It's just another opportunity. But back to the U.S. newspaper project. Go back to Winifred Gregory. She lists 50,000 titles in 3,500 institutions. 30 years later, 1967, someone did a survey of those holdings and found that half of them were gone. It's been 39 more years. How much of that is left, especially with with these microfilming projects? Even more has been tossed. But there's a seduction to microfilm. 98% 98% less space. 95% less weight. Easy to use, less filling. But there's problems with film. You run into problems with quality control. I'll give you an example, a small suburb of Boston, their library gave us their files back to 1865 when they first had their first newspaper. A Couple years later, Someone called me up from their, one of the local historians, nobody had ever looked at the microfilm. Two whole reels were out of focus, nothing legible. If they had tossed the papers, they would have been out of luck, to use the safe term. We microfilmed our set and gave them a good set. We're filming thousands of pages, nobody looks at everything. Even some of the best places, um, there's the Early American newspaper series that have been issued on microphone since 1962 where they try very hard at quality control. Last year somebody noticed that there was a paper newspaper that had only three pages. You don't have three page newspapers. <laughs> Not geometrically. <laughs> somebody had missed page four and nobody had noticed in almost 30 years that the film had been issued. We still had the original. It went down to the microfilmers. Page four is now available. But the other problem is, this with the US Newspaper Project, who controls the microfilm? A lot of this microfilm goes back to the original institution that had their original newspapers, which is often little libraries, historical societies. They don't have a professional microfilm librarian, whether upstate New York library, Like I said, they don't have trained professionals. They don't realize what they have. This one upstate public library, I will not name which one again, their master negatives were put out for public use. They threw away the originals back to the late 1700s. Someone stole half their reels. They don't have the originals to go back and reshoot. It's gone. But that's happening all over the country. There's just microfilm only sitting in libraries. The state of Michigan, where University of Microfilms International resided. resided They're now owned by ProQuest, I believe. 60 libraries. I checked 60 Michigan libraries that had their originals. I found only two that still had them. So between 1937 and 2005, 58 out of those 60 libraries got rid of the originals. Often so long ago they had no idea. There. Last year there's a group called Heritage Preservation. They came out with a heritage health index report where they did a survey of several thousand institutions, libraries, historical societies, museums. You want figures? Let's give you some figures. 1.7 billion rare or unique books, periodicals, scrapbooks, ephemera held by 30,000 institutions. 26% of those institutions have no environmental controls. 59% of the collections have been damaged by light. 53% damaged by moisture. 40% of libraries and 16% of historical societies have no environmental controls at all. 59% of institutions have inadequate space for storing collections. 65% have collections damaged due to improper storage. 80% of items not protected by an emergency preparedness plan. Same 80% of institutions do not have paid staff dedicated to the care of the collections. 68% of institutions have budgets of less than $3,000 on conservation and preservation work and supplies. Now think of where you live. Think within a hundred mile radius of all those little historical societies and libraries. Think of the fact that a lot of them are run by volunteers or people who are not trained professionals. Think of their collections. But think of those numbers. How much is at risk? I'll just give you one example. One of my travels, central Pennsylvania, I just stopped by a little historical society in an old mansion, it's it's typical of a lot of historical societies, old houses, old buildings they don't have the money for new facilities, this place I asked to see the newspapers, they first took me down to the basement, I saw condensation dripping down the walls of those stone foundations in all the rooms, they had a little dinky dehumidifier fighting the futile fight they had wrapped their papers up in plastic, trapping moisture in them and they couldn't understand what I was saying get them out! Then they go, Oh, you want to see the special stuff? They took me up to the attic. This is July. It must have been 120 degrees in that attic. And they all once again, Get him out! They couldn't understand why I was irritated at what I saw. But I offered what I offer all institutions. You know, if you give us your original newspapers before 1877, which is our collecting scope, we will have the microfilm and give you, original, uh, give you the microfilm and we will take care of the originals in our climate controlled stacks where we have our own conservation lab, where we are open to the public, we have cradles where we have both preservation care and access. Absolutely not. We won't give anything to you. Why should we? They're ours. So the phrase I've come up with institutions like that is they're going to love them to death. Kiss them Goodbye. Last summer, I sent out over 450 packets to various New York State libraries and historical societies, making that same offer. Some of the places jumped at the chance, and I hit the roads in cargo vans. One library, um, I'll give it to you, this is Seymour Public Library in Auburn, New York. As I'm taking the volumes off the shelves, they're stacking things on the desk to go on the shelves. They were so overstuffed; they had stuff piled on the floor behind the librarian's desk. We got 37 volumes, almost everything we needed. But we also got places like Lyle, Little Falls, Little Falls, New York public library. Their little public library, they're stored in these big old safes that belonged to the lawyer who originally built the house in the 1880s. They had never taken the volumes out. We took them out and I saw a couple envelopes stuck in the back. There were documents back to the 1790s related to their local history. They had no idea was there. But they loved the fact that we were going we wanted their papers. What? Somebody wants newspapers? Pull up the truck. We'll help you. Jamestown, New York. They that's 450 miles away. They were stored in a cabinet behind broken furniture. They delivered them personally. We had 49 issues from that county. We added almost 5,000. Thank you, Jamestown. (laughs) But people are saying, you know, why do you want newspapers? Well, newspapers are important. At the American Antiquarian Society, one out of every six requests submitted by a patron is for a newspaper. Every month, we pull between 100 and 300 volumes off our shelves for patrons to use. All the periodicals where you received the current subscriptions passed by my desk. And in one year I just I just take an informal, unscientific survey. There's all these state historical societies, their state historical journals. I started looking at those articles, at their footnotes and endnotes. Seventy-five percent of those articles cited at least one newspaper. A couple years ago, the periodical, the American Archivist, did a survey of historians. And they asked, among other things, what types of materials do you use for your research? The materials used by most of the historians, number one on the list, newspapers. It was also ranked number one as the most important to their research. In fact, several noted newspapers are the only source of information that exists for their research. So even when you think of newspapers, you think of bound wrongs, you thinking of runs. I mean, even one issue is important. I came across one issue from Ovid, New York. It's about by the Finger Lakes area. It's a little nothing town. Unrecorded issue from 1820. It had not even been recorded in the county histories. What had happened was, Ovid was originally the county seat of Seneca. Then it moved to Waterloo in 1817. Waterloo became the important town of the area. This unrecorded copy from 1820 notes sheriff's sales for nine different properties. This notice is selling two estates to pay debts. One ad demanding locals to sell up their debts with the headline, Hard Times, it goes on to read, while the present unfavorable hard times continue, we must abandon our usual mode of granting lengthy credits on goods and in adopting this course, we feel convinced that all will acknowledge the proprietary of it and that it will be much to the benefit of the community. The histories they did talk about the decline of the town. This one issue demonstrates the decline of the town. We didn't, and until we discovered that one issue, it's just a sentence in a county history. Now I'm talking about historic papers. Let's let's quickly finish up about papers today. Now newspapers are saved digitally. Newspapers are published in multiple editions in regional editions. Think about the different editions of the New York Times. But often only one edition gets microfilmed. Case in Wisconsin, an agricultural reporter for a major state newspaper was asked for his file of articles and columns when he retired. It turned out his column appeared in the state edition, not the city edition, because there's no farmers in the city. But it was the city edition that was microfilmed. Thirty years of coverage of farming... In the great state of Wisconsin, that would have been lost if we had just relied on the microfilm. Three years ago, I was up in Montreal, and I caught a late night cab, and I started talking to the driver. Turned out his parents immigrated from Greece, this vibrant Greek community in Montreal. And in fact, there's a weekly community newspaper for the Greek community when I asked him, does the local library save it? He didn't think so. It's a free paper. Free stuff doesn't get saved. So I told him, go to an art supply store, buy an archival quality box, and every week when you pick up your copy to read, pick up a second copy and stick in the box. At the end of the year, buy another box. Start filling that. Yes, you're going to start taking up space in your closet, but I said, in ten years, they're going to be knocking on your door going, you got them? It's a community history. It's, Chicago Public Library, I gave a version of this talk last January. The Chicago Public Library gets all the community newspapers. There's 16 different languages that they're published in. They save them for one month, then toss them. They don't even microfilm them. The Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, that gets saved. But that treats Chicago as Chicago. But think of all those little communities the Ukrainian section, the Italian section, Chinatown, the Polish community, the Irish community, and and the north side, Wrigleyville, 50 years from now, people will go, why didn't you save that? Or even something like the National Enquirer. You laugh. Popular culture is a very vibrant academic study. 50 years from now, the National Enquirer is going to be gold. In fact, it is now. I was helping someone doing research. She had a reference to it. some pop culture slang term that was used in 1968. was cited from the National Enquirer. Do you think any library has the National Enquirer? The National Enquirer doesn't have the National Enquirer. <laughs> that changed last year. In Washington D.C., opening up um, in 2007 is something called the Museum. It's a museum to journalism. A dealer found somebody who had saved over 10 years' worth of the National Enquirer. Five, over 5,000 issues is now at the Museum, and I called up that guy from 10 years ago, and he still wanted it. He's going to contact them. So why do things survive? Luck sometimes. There's a collector up in Watertown, New York. He owns his local newspaper. He has his own publisher's file. He also bought up anything he could find in the area. 90% of his collection was not recorded in Gregory's, things found in attics, things that were found locally, found in antique shops. So what is our future? I mean, people Nicholson Baker talked about building warehouses. We need to store it. We need to do more, you know, but people saying the job is too big, the job is too hard. Unfortunately, that is an excuse I don't think will fly in the academics of the future. I'm just going to finish with something that Clarence Brigham wrote in the end of the introduction to his bibliography. If all the printed sources of history for a certain century or decade had to be destroyed, save one... That which would be chosen with the greatest value to posterity would be a file of an important newspaper. Save them. Hopefully, if you have the old stuff, give them to us. (laughs) Thank you very much.